Antarctica is the highest, driest, coldest, windiest, and emptiest continent on Earth. Every year, more than 400 scientists venture there to study everything from astronomy to microbiology. But they can't do it alone. It takes a small army of support staff to keep them all safe and fully operational. The Antarctic Sun podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes for the National Science Foundation to maintain the research stations and vessels that support ongoing science in the harshest continent at the bottom of the planet. This episode, the Shuttles Department. When you first step off the airplane that brought you to McMurdo Station, the first thing you might see is the frozen Ross Ice Shelf that the landing strip is built on, or the smoldering peak of Mount Erebus, the southernmost active volcano in the world. Or maybe the brightly colored vans and buses that are there to transport you safely from the airfield to the station. The vehicles are part of the station's shuttles department, which delivers researchers and support staff to locations all over town. Well, there's people going everywhere. This is Jen Scotia, the vehicle operations supervisor at McMurdo Station. So you've got scores of people going to and fro every um, other day or every day up and down from Christchurch. So a massive amount of people need to be moved throughout the four or five months that we're here. And it's not just from the airfield to the station. It's all over. The station is about the size of a small town, but there are only a few pickup trucks for everyone to share, so the shuttle's department is in charge of moving people all over the 600 acres that make up McMurdo Station. Bill Sund, more popularly known as Shuttle Bill, has been driving in the program for a dozen years. He gives us an idea of what a typical day can be like for the drivers. Okay, so for example, she might give me a run at 8 o'clock to go down to Derelict Junction. That's our main pickup area. You get there and you'll get two scientists that are going out to KBA, which is Ken Bork Air, to go out into the field to do whatever their science is. In the meantime, you'll get a call from the dispatcher that you need to go over to the Crary Lab and pick up four more scientists going to a different aircraft or a different helicopter or a different machine to do their science. So you could have two or three different scientists in your vehicle. We carry up to 14 in the smaller vehicles. 22 in the larger, 56 in the big ones. And that's the kind of day it is. And you deliver them where they're supposed to go, and hopefully you bring them back, you know. They operate a small fleet of vehicles, about two dozen in all. Most are familiar-looking passenger vans with oversized tires. Well, the vans are V10 Fords that have been modified to live and work on the ice with high lifts and so forth. But they also drive some pretty unusual-looking vehicles that are designed for the ice and snow, like the big orange boxy Deltas. The Deltas are vehicles left over from the Navy, is my understanding, and they're articulated. Um, They have many miles on them. Um, They just keep on going. They like to be run. They like to be revved. I love to drive them myself. Robert Lewis and Eric Gardner, popularly known as Shuttle Bob and Shuttle Eric, respectively, are two of the operators that drive the Deltas. Well, just climbing up into them is is exciting. I mean, you've got four-foot-tall tires and a, a good little ladder to climb up. Those you climb up quite a bit. They have like four-and-a-half, five-foot tires, about four feet wide. And you climb up uh, probably the equivalent of about six feet to get into those. And once you're in there, the controls are much more uh, primitive. Uh, and it just feels like you're driving an old army surplus kind of vehicle, which they really are these days. The Deltas are 1978, 82, and 83, I think. And they weigh 45,000 pounds. They carry 
22 people. And they've been beat up pretty bad, but our maintenance shop has managed somehow to keep them running all these years. And um, no suspension, so every bump you hit, you really feel. And it's, it's an exciting opportunity to, to learn to watch the road much more carefully so that you can avoid the big bumps. Probably the most famous member of the fleet is Ivan the Terabus. Ivan, um, he's our favorite. He's friendly. We've personified him. He gets most people from the airfield. Um, Ivan is uh, 56 passengers, smooth ride. You're not going to get anywhere fast. It's big and red. Um, he's, he turns like the Titanic. You have to think about your turn a long time before you're going to make it. Well, I drove regular buses for 20 years, and, tr and trucks both, and Ivan is like nothing to compare. Anyone I train on, I ask them, have you ever driven large vehicles? And they say yes, and I say, forget everything you know, because it, it's uh, six wheels, its turning radius is way over 100 feet in a circle, you know, and that's something you're not used to. And speaking of things you're not used to, the big red 10-wheeled crest is unlike anything else you'll see on or off the roads. Crest is double articulated, 103 feet long, 65 passengers. You can have somebody sitting in the jump seat next to you. Um, you're sitting right in the middle of the road. You're not on either side. It's, it's actually a tractor. Everything about the crest is huge, from its big red passenger cabin to its front engine compartment with an elevated driver's seat on top. Well, you're, stand, you're sitting uh, there at probably about 12 to 14 feet up, and you, get, you have windows all around where the other vehicles, of course, have uh, a lot less windows, and you just get to see everything. And so also you know you're driving the largest and perhaps the most comfortable ride on the continent, and it's just really, really fun to drive. Yeah. Most of the Crest drivers think that, that is really a great thing to ride. To get a feel for what it's like to drive the thing, I went for a ride with Manuel Garcia on a trip down to the airfield. It's just going to warm up for about five minutes before we head out. Driving along the snow roads will take us past New Zealand's Scott Base to the ramp that transitions between the dirt road on terra firma to the compacted snow roads along the ice shelf. I asked him what it's like to drive such an enormous vehicle. It's a challenge. I, I could say it's actually kind of fun. Like fun how? Well, gosh, you're kind of the biggest thing on the road here, and, uh, you know, excellent view, and just, I don't think there's uh, anything quite like this anything anywhere else in the world. He's right. The Crest was custom-built for McMurdo Station by the Crest Corporation about eight years ago. There's actually a second one on station. Instead of a passenger cabin, it has a flatbed trailer and is used by the cargo department for hauling cargo. But despite their tremendous size, Manuel says that driving one is not as hard as it might seem, once you get the hang of it. Oh, for the operator, I mean, the controls are surprisingly similar to a, a passenger vehicle. It's just the, the spatial awareness, the adjusting to having something that's double articulated and fairly long. Um, I feel like Ivan can actually be more of a challenge just because he's rigid, so you really have to like plan out your turns well ahead of time. Uh, have to consider the length of the crest, but it actually is has a really good turning radius and is fairly fairly nimble for something this size. Once we leave the island, though, that agility is not really put to the test as we drive along the long, straight stretches of snow road out to Williams Airfield. Uh, we're going to pick up a southbound flight from Christchurch. 
Um, 30, I think we've got 32 or 33 inbound passengers at uh, Williams uh, Airfield and getting them back into town. This is one of the most common jobs that the Cress and Ivan do, pick up passengers who've just flown in from Christchurch, New Zealand. And it's a trip that another driver, Shelley Sicola, has done many times. The, the favorite part of my job is basically driving Ivan, either picking up a plane. So, for example, when a plane, the first, second plane of the season is coming in, you have 120 people that are arriving on this continent. A lot of them are brand new to the ice, and to see their faces and their eyes when they step off the plane, there's nothing like it. Um, it's, it's, it's awesome to be able to experience that with people their first time coming down here. And um, they're so excited to be here and the smiles on their faces, it just makes me very happy. However, they're not just driving the vehicles. As one of the first people that new arrivals see, the drivers also have to direct the excited passengers to where they need to go. Well, when they get off the plane, all they can see is Erebus and all the snow and the cold. And they're looking around, taking pictures, and the engines are running on the plane. And you're trying to get them into Ivan. And it's like herding cats with a flashlight, you know. And these are all bright people. But they are excited to be here. And uh, so I try to coax them along and finally get them loaded, you know, and then take them into town and get their briefings. It's not a short drive out to the airfields or the long-duration balloon facility, which is another stop out on the ice. The snow roads out to, out to Willie are about eight miles. LDB is a couple more. And then uh, Phoenix is ten and a half miles. It's on the snow, and you add two from where we're sitting, so it's almost 13 miles to Phoenix. So that takes a good 45 minutes in a van and an hour in any of the big vehicles. So we're going slow. Driving on a snow road is much different and more dynamic than driving on asphalt back home. In the States, you drive down the right side of the road. But here on an ice road, you have to look ahead and think ahead. And if you see a pothole or water or a seal hole, on, late in the year, we get a lot of water on the roads. It seeps up. So you drive around them. So you might go out to the ice road, uh, to the runway, and you'd be driving like a snake, you know, to get your people there safely. The driving conditions change along with the road as the season progresses. Well, and we start our season on October 1st. And the roads will be hard then. Temperatures are usually below, well below zero, and that keeps the roads. As closer you get to Christmas, first of December, they start softening up, softening up. Right around Christmas time, there are no roads. There are flags where roads are supposed to be. And it's usually water, potholes, deep drifts, and wet ruts. And that's when we go to Deltas, and we're hard-pressed to keep everything on schedule. It's really hard to do. Fortunately, they have some help from the folks with some heavy-duty machinery to keep the roads open. Fleet Ops, which is the road people that maintain it, they do a wonderful job. They drag the roads with huge machines to try to keep the holes filled, and they're ready to tow us out when we get stuck. What they do is pile snow onto the roads, make them higher. So as the weather gets warmer and the roads drop, they have this cushion on top. And that's how it works. And then about the 15th, 18th of January, the temperatures start to drop again, and the roads kind of return to normal. Every day they get a little more hard, a little harder, a little harder, a little harder, more solid. 
Now, because the roads are made of compacted snow next to more snow, it can be hard to see exactly where the lanes are, but there are markers along the routes to help. All our snow roads are lined with flags, and each flag is 50 feet apart. Every 50 feet, there's a flag. So as long as you can see one flag, you can drive. Once that single flag disappears, you would call the dispatcher and and let them know that you're stopped at a certain location. You try to tell them exactly where you are. And this is an important point. Antarctica can be a dangerous place, and the weather can be unpredictable. So they have to be prepared for anything. Operators always carry their ECW bags, extremely cold weather gear. And when it looks like today with the sun shining, you don't know what the weather will be 12 miles out on the glacier. So you have to be prepared. We keep the vans full of fuel at all times. They're never down less than three quarters. And we check them twice a day for oil and fluids and tires. It's, uh, it, it is, you have to be ready for anything that happens. And I've seen condition ones just roll in and catch people. Condition one is the worst weather that Antarctica has to offer. And if a shuttle does get caught out in that, there's still an emergency search and rescue plan. So if you don't come in in a reasonable amount of time, they'll send out a search and rescue where they have their GPS and especially trained people, and then they'll bring you back to town. That, of course, is extremely rare. But inclement weather frequently disrupts the day's carefully planned out schedule. So it's just constantly a changing thing. You don't know what you're going to do each day, each hour. Every time somebody comes in the room, they walk right over to the schedule and they see what's changed. In the middle of the room is the big white board with all the day's plans. It's central command for the whole department. This flight board um, has all the different flights on it. And then you have all the different shuttlers that come in at different times. And it's basically a Tetris puzzle to fit in all the shuttle runs, all the flight pickups, and it involves multiple uh, erasures all throughout the day. We erase things um, because the Tetris puzzle keeps changing with cancellations. And we all check our schedule probably four to five times a day as it can change in a matter of minutes. So that's pretty much how we do it. If you can't handle change in your daily life, you cannot work here. You come in at six in the morning and you'll look and see what you're gonna do for the whole day. You may not you may not do a thing that's on that schedule because aircraft will break down, have to stay at a field someplace. Scientists will say, Oh, I have to go now, unplanned. They're down here to do their science and they have to go. So now the you thought you were gonna sit here and eat pizza for five minutes, you're not gonna do that. Jennifer will give you a van or a vehicle, whatever it calls for, and send you on your way. And you may be out there for an hour, three hours. You don't know. It can be demanding with long hours behind the wheel, but the team members make the best of it. Everybody works together, and so that's one of the most important things. So when people come in, they're here to work. They're here to uh, treat our customers or internal customers really well. And that's how we deal with the stresses of really hectic days or weeks. And it's not just the shuttles department. McMurdo Station, and really the entire U.S. Antarctic program, is full of people who are passionate about their mission supporting science in Antarctica. I've worked with a lot of highly motivated, wonderful, uh, very cooperative people in my life, various teams. This is the very best of all my experiences in life for teamwork and people that are super friendly and work very, very hard. It's hard to imagine eight, nine, 1,000 people working together so hard to fill um, a need. And this is the place at McMurdo that they do that. 
That's all for this edition of the Antarctic Sun podcast, and stay tuned for more. I'll be bringing you more behind-the-scenes looks at how the National Science Foundation gets science done at the bottom of the world. And check out our website at antarcticsun.usap.gov for more news and science from the frozen continent. Thanks for listening.